This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We often hear that sitting in traffic costs drivers and businesses billions of dollars in lost productivity, fuel. One recent study estimated the average driver loses more than $1,600 a year just by sitting in traffic. And the thought is that dings the economic output of a city like Denver. Not so fast, says a civil engineer at CU Denver. Wes Marshall, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Traffic frustrations notwithstanding, road planners often cite congestion hurting the economy when they advocate for new highway projects. I mean, CDOT just announced it'll break ground next month on a widening of I-25 between Monument and Castle Rock. Uh, But you offer evidence that congestion isn't as costly as people often claim. Tell us about this evidence. Well, I mean, this is a uh, a question I've been interested in for a while. And when I started digging into it, I was interested. It was curious to see how little evidence there was on one side or the other of this. Like, for instance, I grew up in the Boston area. And when they were doing the big dig, they sold it under the premise that if we don't do anything, then by 2020, we're going to have 15 hours of bumper to bumper traffic every day. The big dig was a massive Massive, highway project, essentially uh, under the city tunneling a highway. And then... When I started digging into how they actually calculate those costs that they cite for every project, every highway project, every big widening, that they basically multiply that delay people have by their value of time. So how much money they sort of might make otherwise. And they give you these ungodly numbers of, of how much impact there is for the for the, if we don't do something about these projects. Right. And it, it's interesting because – I mean in reality, people are rational. Like, they're not going to sit in traffic for 15 hours per day. Um, it's – Something where people will do something different. They'll walk, bike, take transit, they'll move downtown. So that half of it seemed a little bit silly. The other half is that, you know, if you had a few minutes less delay in the morning on the way to work, that you'd actually make more money. Um, very few of us would that be the case. Oh, so, I see. So the flip side of it isn't quite rational. Y- yeah. So I was curious, uh, you know, could we actually answer this question? Like, And that's where we started with this. It sounds like the numbers used to figure out the big dig and what it might cost to sit in traffic – they had no limit. In other words, they might be saying you could sit in traffic for 15 hours? Well, what they do is they take existing travel trends and they just extrapolate those to the future. So they don't take into account that people are rational and they might do something different. Like, for instance, on the I-70 corridor, they said if we don't do something by 2035, it'll take 65 minutes to get from Tower Road to I-25 intersection, which is slower than 10 miles per hour. Like, will people do that? I mean, I can bike a lot faster than that across the city. I mean, so you would think people might do something different. Okay. So historically, you say this has been measured with a pretty blunt instrument. When you refine that instrument, what do you actually find is the answer to this question of what congestion costs us? We looked as at much data as we could. We got 30 years of data for the biggest 100 metro areas. And what we found is, at least in the U.S., there wasn't a level of congestion where it actually started hurting the economy measurably. Um, so it, it wasn't seeing the, that negative impact that you might expect based upon sort of the, the conventional premise. You would expect then that cities with terrible congestion problems to in some ways reflect that in their economies. You you did not find evidence of that. You're right. Saying. I mean, every year they come out with the, you see it in the news, the top 10 most congested U.S. cities. And if you look at the list of cities, it's always our best cities. Like you see New York and you see, I mean, places like that. And they have the biggest congestion, but they're also the places that are most economically productive. So we're actually seeing the opposite trend, that congestion is just the byproduct of having a good economy. Huh. 
So congestion is a sign of success. Yeah. Data, of course, can pierce through conventional wisdom. But let me just run through a few examples of why it seems intuitive to me that traffic would affect the bottom line, at least on a micro level, if not a macro level. I think what you're talking about is the economy of a city overall. Yeah. But I'm thinking of an employee sitting in traffic who starts to fester and demands more money to put up with the commute or changes jobs because of it. Maybe leaves the city entirely because he or she is just sick of the commute. So you have the cost of turnover potentially for businesses there. All of that must add up to something, Wes Marshall. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that that's part of it. But when we're looking at the macro level, it's hard to get into that that nitty gritty. But at the same point, um, you know, when you're looking at millennials and they're deciding where to live, they're going to these places that are highly congested. So there are new people coming into these places, even if somebody might be leaving. But instead of leaving, maybe they're just choosing a different job or maybe they're choosing where to live in a more location efficient place. Um, you know, over the last 20 years, as congestion has increased in Colorado, you've seen an uptick in people wanting to live downtown. Um, part of that might be the externality, the benefit of congestion is people want to live in a more location efficient place. And this speaks to how you think people adapt their behaviors in ways to accommodate congestion uh, ways that perhaps previous measurements didn't capture. All right. What's the takeaway here? Are you saying that highways shouldn't be widened, that the arguments for their widening are simply incorrect and and there needs to be more truth told to the public? What's the takeaway? Well, there are still plenty of reasons to try to reduce congestion, but a fear that it will hurt the economy should not be the main argument anymore. Um, bigger picture, I would say that when we're asking ourselves, how do we solve congestion, we're asking the wrong question. I mean, that's not the point of transportation. We should be asking, how do we get people where they need to go? One of the answers to that could be reducing congestion, but in the end, you get a much broader subset of, of solutions that can include infill development, can include transit and walking and biking. Um, so n stop asking how do we solve congestion. Instead, ask a broader question that gets more at the fundamental goal of transportation. Stop asking how to solve congestion and ask more about, say that again. The, how do we get people where they question. need to go? How do we get people where they need to go? And I guess what you're saying is that that influences much more than the width of a road. Yeah. I mean, in reality, the more we widen roads, the more cars come to them. There's an induced demand. So in bigger picture, we have not ever solved congestion other than in places where we've instituted pricing. So we can widen roads and keep widening roads to the point where we kill our cities. And that is sort of the fear of, of that solution. Have you seen a city that has invested, say, in widening roads, in lots of highway infrastructure, to either the benefit of their economy or perhaps the detriment of it? Well, I, I always hate picking on Detroit, but... I mean, that's essentially what happened there. They widened their highways and their roads so much that there was nothing left in downtown for people to come to, that they took away a lot of the neighborhoods, that they, you know, ruined the sort of the street network and they put in these highways through where these old neighborhoods were. And they that's sort of the one city where you see they overbuilt it to the point of hurting their economy. So when you hear a politician or a state official saying we must do this road project, our economy depends on it. You're, you're not saying that that is wholly untrue, but that it ought to be met with at least some skepticism. Yes. All right. Thanks for being with us, Wes. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Wes Marshall, Associate Professor of Civil Engineering at CU Denver. He co-authored this study of congestion. We'll post a link to it after the show at CPR. 
www.ghostsofthecommonwealth.org. Many sex offenders who are now in prison will one day be released, and their release often depends on whether they get treatment while behind bars. There's also obviously a public safety interest in getting them that treatment. The thing is, there aren't enough therapists. A new state law takes effect tomorrow that directs the Department of Corrections to find ways to recruit more therapists. We're going to get some insight now from Rick May. He's a licensed psychologist who works with sex offenders. Hi, Rick. Good morning. My initial reaction when I hear there's a shortage of therapists with this specialty in treating sex offenders uh, is to say, why would someone want that job, particularly in prisons? I I wonder how you answer that question yourself, why you work with this particular population. Well, you're right. It is a difficult population to work with. Um, I work with this population because I think we can make a big difference in the safety of the community. If we stop one individual from offending, we oftentimes save dozens if not hundreds of victims. And so we find that the work can be, can be really rewarding as well as extremely stressful. Extremely stressful. Yes. I'll get to the stresses in just a moment. Okay. But fundamentally, what I'm hearing you say there is that the work works. It can have positive outcomes. And I think this speaks to the fundamental question, which is, can sex offenders be rehabilitated? I imagine that the answer to that depends on the type of offender and the type of offenses. Correct. Um, depending on the offense, depending on the treatment, um, We have good success with individuals who are motivated to get help. Individuals who are not motivated, the success is not so good. I imagine that's true in general, in therapy. Correct. Is that to say that a pedophile can be, for lack of a better term, cured? Cure is not a word we usually use. Um, When you're talking about a pedophile, the individuals can make decisions to never cross sexual boundaries again. They can learn the skills to do that. Whether that's going to change their basic sexual urges, that's a different story. Um, But making a decision to not cross sexual boundaries, not victimize somebody, is within their ability. You do not, through therapy, remove perhaps their desires, but you instill in them the power, the thinking process to make a different decision? That's the way we see it, yes. How much has this kind of therapy evolved in just, say, the last few decades? We've gone from a very punitive model within Colorado and and nationally to where it was punishment for the individuals, lock them up, um, and treatment either wasn't available or it was, again, more of a punitive model of treatment. Um, now we're really seeing that giving the individual the skills to make better decisions, to have a healthier life, a more proactive life, can really make a difference in whether they reoffend or not. Can bring down thus the recidivism. Yes. Right. Okay, to this idea of the stresses that these types of therapists are under, I imagine this speaks to why the Department of Corrections has trouble finding these kinds of therapists. What are the stresses? Sexuality is a difficult topic for anybody to talk about. Um, When we're talking about deviant or inappropriate sexuality, 
and to talk about that all day, every day um, is extremely stressful. It has to weigh on you. It does. Um, there, there are certain times in a therapist's life where we see them leaving the field. Um, having children is one of them. When they have their own children and then hear about children being abused all day, that can be oftentimes more stress than they want. Just too hard to be a parent and hear that at work every day. For a lot of individuals, yes. Um, it's scary for some individuals. Um, they don't know how they're going to react. First time they walk into a room with somebody who has committed a rape or an assault of some other type, um, and, and they don't know how they're going to react. We train a lot of graduate students in our program, and we work with them closely on their reaction to being with this population. And they usually find that they, they love it and feel like they can really do some good work or they hate it and they want to go into a totally different type of psychology. Huh. What do you think would be ways you could attract more therapists to this line of work? Because nothing of what you've said can sort of change. They're the fundamentals of this line of work, you know? A lot of what we do is teaching our staff how to take care of themselves, how to have a life outside the office, how to do self-care, as we call it in the field. So that perhaps you reduce the burnout, you reduce the turnover. Correct. Um, one of the other problems, like in, in um, DOC's situation, they're often very rural settings. And so you have young 20-somethings coming out of graduate school, and the idea is that they're going to move to a very rural area to work. That's not always their first choice of where they want to live. I have to think that pay must come up in conversations and that increasing it might increase the pool of therapists. Um, I think that really is important. Um, most of our students come out of school with a massive amount of debt, and to start a job that's low-paying just to get you know, great experience is sometimes a choice they may not make. Um, and then retaining those individuals in a prison setting rather than in a community setting can also be um, something that a lot of individuals do not choose for themselves. That is, they'd rather be in private practice or at a clinic or something like that. Yes. Is the pay low? You know, I'm not familiar with the exact pay scale for DOC since I run a private clinic. Yeah. You, 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 I'll say that you have a, n a number of bona fides in this regard because you sit on the Colorado Sex Offender Management Board. I do. Which uh, looks into sort of rules and regulations around this population. Correct. And, and you were in a prison setting earlier. Um, I also wonder if there's just stigma about working in this field. When you tell people what you do, you could say you're a therapist and you might go a f bit further and say, I work with, with sex offenders. And, and I wonder if, if just that is a tough thing to sort of have as a career to talk about. It's definitely a conversation stopper at a party. Um, but even in the field, um, we're not considered probably the top of the pecking order. Um, as far as psychologists or social workers go, uh, the forensic field in and of itself is seen as probably some of the hardest work you can do. And so people often ask, other psychologists often ask, 
Why do you do that? They have asked the same question that I started this interview with. Yeah. This new law going into effect requires the Department of Corrections to create incentives to recruit sex offender therapists. And the department must do a better job of tracking whether offenders are getting treated in a timely way. Some of this is due to concerns that uh, since sex offenders in prison can't be released until they're treated, that many remain behind bars while they await treatment. Can a prison sentence for a sex offender be a de facto life sentence if there's just a shortage of therapists to treat them? It potentially can. Usually the individual will, to my understanding, what they call kill their number eventually. They'll be sentenced to X number of years and if they don't get treatment, then be released when those years are up. Um, so depending on what their sentence is, you know, that'll determine if they don't get treatment, potentially how long they'll be inside. That is to say there are some being released who need treatment and aren't getting it. Are not getting it, yes. Okay. Yes. And that's an obvious public safety concern. You said earlier that the, the system has transitioned a bit from a punitive model towards sex offenders to more of a therapeutic or rehabilitative model. I can imagine some people listening for whom that's unsettling, who think, uh particularly those who, cre who who commit sexual crimes against children, uh, that really the, the punitive is where the emphasis should be. Can I have you respond to that? I understand as a parent the desire for punishment, the desire to have somebody removed from the community. Looking at it as a professional, I see that most of these individuals will be, as we mentioned earlier, in the community at some point. And to have them back in the community without effective treatment um, makes them a higher risk. And so trying to separate the parent from the professional, um, looking at what I, what I want for the community and how to keep the community safer, really, really makes me lean towards the whole issue of we need to make sure they get good, effective treatment. Thank you for being with us. You're welcome. We spoke there with Rick May. He's a licensed psychologist who works with sex offenders. He's also on Colorado's Sex Offender Management Board. We spoke as a new state law takes effect to address the shortage of therapists who treat sex offenders in the prison system. When we come back, how the housing market in Colorado is still recovering from the Great Recession. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Try to find a contractor to remodel your kitchen or some other room in your home, and it can be tough. Remodeling is at an all-time high in the U.S. Denver's no exception. Why? Because people are staying in their homes longer, which isn't great news for the housing market, especially if you want to buy. CPR business reporter Ben Marcus is tracking this trend and its effects. The housing market just isn't working the way it used to. There's a lack of turnover. People who own homes are staying put. And the money they might spend on a bigger house is actually going into remodeling projects. 
In a Capitol Hill condo, a construction worker scrapes tiles from a shower with a power tool. Remodel companies have never been this busy. Doesn't surprise me. (laughs) That's Brian Prendergast with Professional Home Design. He says he gets two to three calls a day from homeowners. Uh, So they may do a bathroom and then next year do a kitchen. Uh, But they seem to be on track to, to remodel as much of the interior as they can. Because rather than compete for a shrinking pool of homes for sale, they're not moving actually making the problem worse, reducing the number of homes potentially on the market. According to RealtyTrack, Americans are living in their homes almost twice as long as before the recession. That's the situation for Margie and Ben Vick. They live in Far East Aurora, out by E-470. They're customizing their starter home for the long term, starting with the kitchen. Basically, Margie is not exactly the tallest person on the planet. So there's no top cabinets, everything's down low. So that was, you know, part of the design intent was, again, making it our own and making it work for us. They've been here for four years, and these first-time homebuyers couldn't have picked a better investment. The competition for houses in Denver has driven up prices, and their property, incredibly, has almost doubled in value. We thought it was pretty incredible until we started looking around to see if there was anything else that we could move into. Margie says they really wanted something with a bigger yard, but at every potential house they got outbid or they lost to cash offers. Margie says they're trying to live within their means, not buy a home that they can't afford. You know, learning the lessons of the last housing crisis. And the market is telling us if you want to compete, you have to like shed some of that, and we're not willing to do that. They're unwilling to put their house on the market and take the risk of overextending themselves. Lawrence Yoon, a chief economist with the National Association of Realtors, says potential sellers are afraid of selling and not being able to find another house at all. If they sell their home, can they buy the next home? How competitive is it? So they uh, will do well as a home seller, but they are very concerned as a buyer and hence they are staying in their home for a longer period. But it's also bigger than that. Many people just don't care to move. Bill McBride is a housing economist who writes the blog Calculated Risk. To, you know, continue to enjoy life and you're around your friends and all the things you know. I mean, it just, it, it just makes sense. And so we, we, we're to, for those homes to come on the market, we still have a long time to wait. Denver has record low levels of homes for sale. It's a combination of factors. There's a lack of new home construction. Investor landlords are unwilling to give up on big rental income. And so they're not putting those homes up for sale. And many homeowners are staying put, too. That lack of normal supply is driving values up, pricing many buyers out of the market. McBride says things are bad for families shut out of the housing market, but it's not a problem on the scale of the housing recession 10 years ago. So this one is much less obvious. Somebody's stuck renting. You know, it's not the end of the world for them. It's not a, it's not a family tragedy. But long term, long term, there could be an impact from that. Especially in terms of lost wealth from housing appreciation. Back at Margie Vick's house, she admits that they're lucky. They've built a mountain of equity, but still they're stuck in this starter home. Yeah, I think it's, you know, we work hard for what we have and what we want and, you know, what we want our life to be. And it's, it's, it's just a dream that we can't attain. The dream is increasingly unattainable for many Coloradans shut out of the housing market altogether. The home ownership rate in the Denver area has fallen dramatically since the recession. Just more than half of families now own. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. Ben is in the studio. I think that's going to resonate with so many people. I keep 
getting estimates for what my place is worth, Ben, and I think, okay, I could sell it, but the only way I could buy something is to move to Altoona, you know? Uh, my joke is always like Des Moines or Omaha, Phoenix. Basically, you can't sell in Denver and move up. Okay, so Ben's story is part of a reporting partnership with NPR focused on housing. And we do want to drill down a bit more. It's been 10 years since the housing crisis rocked this country. And yet the fallout is still felt today in cities like Denver. The problems, though, can be more subtle now. And Ben, your reporting has looked at w- ways indeed that the housing market isn't working properly. Are they really tied, those issues, to the Great Recession a decade ago? It really does speak to just how powerful that this crisis was. Uh, And let's take a recent story from the series we did with NPR, and this is looking at investor landlords. So 10 years ago, foreclosures swept through the U.S. and in Denver, and investors who had the money and the intestinal fortitude decided there was an opportunity here. And so they bought up a lot of houses, especially in low-income neighborhoods, and hoping that the recession would go away and the values would go up and they'd make a lot of money. The recession created this massive renter class. And rents drove up incredibly in cities like Denver. And so these investor landlords are making great money um, from these renters and they have no interest in selling. So they're holding back properties from the market. And these would be good properties for first time home buyers to buy into because they're in cheaper, lower income neighborhoods. Uh, and so this is, again, you can draw a line from almost every problem we have in the housing crisis today back to the Great Recession and how that really shifted the way normal real estate transactions happen in this country. So right now in Denver and many cities, one of the larger problems is this imbalance of supply and demand. There's a lot of demand, little supply. Right. This is the dominant theme, I think, in the country and in Denver, that demand is extremely high, that even though the housing crisis really rocked a lot of people's worlds, they still see the value in homeownership. It's still the American dream. It's a way to stabilize housing costs and build wealth. Uh, Surveys from the National Association of Realtors have constantly ranked um, homeownership as something most people want, especially young home buyers. Um, But the problem is there isn't a lot of supply. There are very few properties to choose from in Denver and other parts of the country, but especially in the West. And that's in part because the recession wiped out a lot of home builders. So they're not building enough homes. um, And so they're turning to the existing home market. And again, we've covered how people aren't really leaving their homes. They're remodeling them instead. That's right. So if I had a starter home, even the notion of the starter home is that there would be a second home in your future, right? Right. But the idea is I'm in a starter home. I move to the second home. And then someone moves into my old starter home. That's what's being lost with the remodeling trend. Right. It's Realtors kind of put it as a lack of normal flow in the market, right? So a young family would move into a bigger house. Maybe somebody whose kids have gone off to college would, would downsize, go into a condo downtown. But because there's really no supply anywhere, people are just kind of stuck keeping homes off the market. It's kind of like a catch-22. If more people were putting their homes for sale, then there'd be more supply. But wouldn't this create just a a beautiful market to develop condos and to build homes. I mean, if you're a home builder right now, that's what you want. You would think um, the house, the homes that were being built before the recession, we still haven't gotten to that level. Hundreds of thousands of people have moved here, but home builders have still never caught up. And that's really the major part of this crisis. Okay, so it will be a matter of time before this begins to change. And CPR business reporter Ben Marcus will keep his eye on things.
In Pueblo, a very public debate is brewing over the balance of coal and renewable energy. The state's largest utility has big plans for the steel city, with a future defined less by fossil fuels. And it could mean changes at Excel's Pueblo power plant. CPR's Grace Hood reports. Pueblo's skyline is defined by the three smokestacks at the Comanche plant, the largest owned by Excel in Colorado. For the last 15 years, that's been the destination for Dave McKenzie's morning commute. We're very well paid for what we do, but we work in a dangerous situation. Workers at Comanche can make up to $100,000 a year, but a proposed plan by Excel Energy wants to draw half of its electricity from renewable sources. That means two out of the three smokestacks would come down. That makes McKenzie nervous. Two of his son-in-laws also work at the plant. About 80 jobs hang in the balance. I don't want to see my grandkids have to leave. You know, it's fun having them run around the house. But if these jobs go away, so do they. Excel says by 2025, workers will either retire or be placed in new jobs. But McKenzie says he wants more details. The transition away from coal jobs is not unique to Pueblo. It's happening nationwide because more utilities are turning to renewables, even under President Donald Trump. Outside the world's largest wind tower construction site at the Vestas plant in Pueblo, giant plates of steel roll down a large conveyor belt. Excel's plan calls for 1,100 additional megawatts of wind. Plant manager Tony Knopp says that could translate into more orders. Business for the 800 workers here is strong. We're fully booked all the way through 21 at this factory. I mean, how many companies can look forward and say, you know, my production uh, forecasts are that high? This Vestas plant and the future Excel projects didn't just land in Pueblo by accident. Chris Markison of the County Economic Development Office says they're part of a careful strategy laid out over years to attract renewable energy firms. If you think about it, Pueblo has long been in the energy conversion business. We started with smelting steel, converting coal into energy to make steel. Markerson says even when the Comanche plant shrinks, Pueblo still stands to gain about $1.4 million in annual tax revenue. That's because the utility wants to build a solar farm and one of the largest battery storage projects in the country. In the end, it's not just job numbers that matter to Markerson. It's economic growth and giving Pueblo a new heyday. Really to push people from a place of poverty into a place of affluence. And that is a a difficult thing to do. Average wages still remain low, about 20,000 below Colorado's median. And there are other challenges. Electric rates are well above average for both homeowners and businesses. Those high bills really get under the skin of Rebecca Vigil with the citizens group Pueblo's Energy Future. Dozens crowded into a room to discuss an ambitious goal. The city wants to get 100% of its energy from renewable sources. Vigil explains most people here actually get their energy from another utility, Black Hills. So it has a big impact here with people trying to get ahead and also with businesses. Black Hills says its rates are competitive with other providers in the region. That's what's really unique about Pueblo. Despite a huge Excel power plant, their energy comes from Black Hills, the state's second largest utility. Tensions between residents and that utility are high. 
Jim Brown with Steel City Solar knows these pluses and minuses better than most. He built his business two years ago around customers fed up with high utility bills. You know, it's eating into their budgets, eating into, you know, the other things that they like to do. Brown says he tells potential solar customers that he could save them 30 percent off their electric bill. As a former paratrooper and electrician, he actively sought out work in the solar industry. The Excel plan could bring more experienced solar installers to Pueblo, and that would help Brown, who hopes to one day double the size of his company. I mean, people just have to evolve. Industries change all the time. Colorado regulators are expected to give their decision on Excel's 55 percent renewable energy plan and the future of Pueblo's Comanche plant this September. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. The new album from country singer Dirks Bentley has a whole lot of Colorado on it. Ever since we touched down in Colorado, I could tell something wasn't right. Cause you'll look at those snow-capped mountains, you won't look into my eyes. Performing at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival last year inspired the Nashville-based country star in many ways. It led to this new album. It even moved him to launch a new music festival on Labor Day. I reached Bentley on the phone while he was taking his dogs for a walk. Dirks, thanks for being with us. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It sounds like you fell hard for Telluride, huh? I did. I really did fall hard. I've been to Telluride before, and my brother's been trying to get me to come back out there ever since. And something about going back out there with kids and the Bluegrass Festival, obviously, and just felt like a really natural place to be. I felt like home. And uh, so I started coming back out more often and eventually ended up making a record there this last year. Indeed. This is the latest album. Sorry about the dog barking in the background. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> the album you refer to is The Mountain. And your visit to Colorado most recently, I guess, also inspired the creation of the Seven Peaks Music Festival. It'll be held on a 240-acre yeah. Yeah, ranch in Buena Vista. Talk to me a little bit about your goal with that. I mean, it's all pretty selfish, the whole thing, really. It's, uh, when I was in Colorado last year for the Telluride Bluegrass Festival, I played there on a Thursday and had a great time and thought, man, how can I get back out here? You know, I have three kids and a pretty busy uh, touring life, and the idea of coming back out and writing the record in Colorado came out of that. My wife was really a big proponent of that. And then when we were out there writing, it's like, well, how can we get back out here again? Well, let's come out here and make the record. You know, it was kind of a laughable idea, but then we actually found a studio and came back out for that. Then after we made the record, it was like, well, we've been talking about doing this uh, festival for a long time. If you're going to do a festival in Colorado, you want it to feel like you're in the Rockies, and doing it in Denver just didn't really feel like that. It's a big city, and the mountains are pretty far away. And then um, this location in Buena Vista came up. Some people call it Buena Vista or BV. I'm too close to the border. I'm from Arizona. So to me, it'll always be Buena Vista. Buena Vista. But, uh, came to BV, and uh, it's just the perfect location. You know, these seven 14,000-foot mountains uh, you know, visible from the festival site. And great town, great people. Everyone really wanted to work with us and was really excited about having a, you know, country music come into the, to the area. And Again, it all goes back to me just trying to find more ways to spend more time in Colorado. You know, other music festivals have tried and failed on that very property in Buena Vista. I also think of a festival called Riot Fest, which got ousted from Byers, Byers, Colorado, and left after a few years uh, having moved to Denver. What What are the headwinds here? Well, I didn't know about the failure, but... It's always good to know. Thanks a lot, Ryan. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, 
I've tried to eliminate as many head ones as possible. I'm working with uh, Brian O'Connell, who's the head of country in Live Nation, who's launched about six really successful festivals, country festivals across the country in the last six, seven years. We're a like mind when it comes to what a great festival is. For us, that's something that really puts the fan experience first and foremost, down to the little details, I always say, you know, making sure there's at least twice as many porta potties for girls as there are for guys. Like all those small things that add up to being making the experience great for fans. It's not about money. We want Miranda Lambert and Brothers Osborne and Del McCurry Band and Sam Bush, the bluegrass component, to uh, everyone have a great time at the show, but uh, really the fans. The cynic will hear you say this is not about money and think that can't possibly be true if Live Nation is involved. Well, it's about money for somebody. It's not about money for me. <laughs> <Okay>. I mean, <laughs> I, I can, I don't, I've never paid attention to any of that. I'm obviously Live Nation's trying to make money out of it, but you know, we, we sat down to look at it. It's like, do I want to get paid this first year and all that stuff? I'm like, no, my goal is this would be like a, you know, this five, 10 years down the road. Yeah, it made us successful. We can look at that then, but I just want this to be something that, that works. I Come feel like in the title track to this new album, your ninth album, The Mountain, I feel like you have written an anthem for Colorado. Well, you better know the bottom if you want to be a climber. Because there's always another one a little bit higher. Just when I think I'm finally done, I'm staring at another one. So I reach down deep and I lay some up tighter. It was only a mountain, nothing but a big old rock. The mountain, yes. So one of my good friends, a guy named Kevin Jorgensen, who's a world-famous climber. He's done the Dawn Wall and has actually a movie out right now about it. And uh, he was giving me and another friend of mine, Blake McCoskey, who started up uh, Tom's Shoes. They, uh, they climbed together a bunch, and they were giving me a bunch of crap because... You know, I got this big beard, and I'm singing songs called The Mountain, and, and they're, they're laughing because I've never actually climbed a mountain. I've, <laughs> you know, I've, hiked all over, I've hiked all over the place. I love going for a good hike, but I've never actually put the gear on and climbed. So recently, I was in uh, the Tetons out in Wyoming, and I did some, some pretty serious climbing. So I feel like uh, the song now, I have a little, when I sing the song, The Mountain, the next show, I have a little more uh, under my belt here to actually pull that song off. It was only a mountain. Just took a little step, a right then a left, now standing on the top just shouting. Indeed, the album was recorded in Colorado just outside of Telluride at Studio in the Clouds. What a great name for yeah. a mountain, mountain studio. Oh, awesome studio. You met, obviously, the owner of, of the studio, and, yeah. and he was in, engaged in something uh, perhaps thoroughly Western when you saw him. Very Western, but Western and very Colorado spiritual way. But yeah, we pulled up to his, his uh, studio, which is really just a house on the Mesa up there in Telluride. And uh, first thing I noticed was a dog looked more like a wolf was uh, guarding some sort of animal carcass. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And he come around the corner and there he is you know, on the table saw cutting up an elk and comes over to say hi. And he's got flecks of you know, flesh all over him. And he's got these really old tools he's using. And then uh, we're like, what is this? Who's this guy? This is amazing. And then we get inside later on and he's Come more of the uh, the 420 spiritual Colorado element and uh, offering all sorts of delicious uh, treats for the band and crew. And 
truly a mountain man. Are you high on most of the record? No, no, no. Oh, okay. I'm not good at being high and, and singing. No, no, no. I actually, I, I'd actually didn't sing the record in Colorado. I thought I was going to, but then I realized, you know, 10,000 feet's not a really good place to get enough breath to uh, to sing. So I actually sang <laughs> everything back in Nashville. I'm traveling light. I'm laying it down. All those demons I know I keep dragging around. I'm cutting the ties. I'm dropping the weight. I'm on my hurt and my regrets and my mistakes. I'm tired of living, unforgiving, so I'm traveling light. This is the track Traveling Light from the new album from Dirks Bentley, The Mountain, and it features a duet with Randy Carlyle, whose voice, oh my gosh, it's so otherworldly. I, I just, oh. I could listen to that voice all day. <laughs> did, you, did you meet her at Telluride? Yeah, she played, uh, she went on after us in 2017. She was so good. I hadn't really, she hadn't been on my radar for a couple of years, and I, it's just so good. I got back to Nashville, and it was like, almost like the radio was, was telling me it was meant to be. I was listening to public radio here in town, and she came on, and she's singing her song, The Joke, and it was like her voice, you can just feel like you're in the studio, and you can just feel like you could see the, the needles going into the red. Like, her voice is so powerful. Little. You know, I was able to get a number, I sent her a text, and we ended up texting back and forth a bunch, and we just went back and forth, and I, I sent her the tracks, and uh, out to the West Coast, and she was able to do her thing, and, and send them back to me, and usually it's like, it's verse, chorus, and then you bring someone in, they sing the, the verse, and then they sing harmonies to the other person on the chorus, right? That's usually how it works. And I was like, it'd be so cool if you just took the whole second chorus, just take it for your own, and just go for it, and uh, she did. And it's, you know, one of my favorite things on the record, just hearing her sing that second chorus so high and her voice is so piercing. It's just, uh, ah, it's just amazing. And I, the fact that she loved the song just meant the world to me. I'm traveling Right, to another woman in your life, the one you're married to, actually, Cassidy Black. There's yeah. a there's a track on the new album, Dirk Bentley, The Mountain, called Women Amen. Uh, and you shot the music video in Buena Vista. You call it Buena Vista. I like that. You call it Buena. All right. Well, now, local. do you know the story behind that? <laughs> uh, I probably heard it one night when I was out there hanging out with the mayor, but I um, can't the, remember it. The town founders wanted the name to sound like the word beautiful. So they, they very specifically oh. call it Buena Vista for that reason. Okay, well, 
I'm from Arizona. It's just never going to happen. But <laughs> it's never the story. <laughs> okay, Appreciate there you go. One. Well, you you have the information now. Uh, in any case, <laughs> you you think that uh, your wife might think "Women Amen" was her favorite track on the album. In a way, it's an ode to her, uh, and yet I, I understand it's actually not her favorite track. Uh, she's been through that whole game so many times with me. I mean, there's so many times I've walked in the door and gone, I wrote this song for you. And, you know, the the girl in the song has blue eyes. My wife's like, yeah, I got brown eyes. I'm like, I know the blue eyes, you know, has a just rhymed better. And But uh, the, this song was different for sure. And, you know, and she loves that, the sentiment. And it's of all of the songs I've ever written for her, it's definitely the, the most direct, the most authentic, I guess would be the, the best word for it. She loved it, but she really loves the song called Burning Man, which is a uh, which is the single right now. We just shot the video for. I'm a little bit steady, but still a little bit rolling stone. I'm a little bit heaven, but still a little bit flesh and bone. Little found, little don't know where I am. I'm a little bit holy water, but still a little bit burning man. Burning man. Dirk Bentley is our guest. He joins us ahead of his new music festival uh, in Buena Vista on Labor Day. And if you hear him breathing in the background there, it's because he's walking his dog as he speaks to us. And any dog owner would want to know whether your dog has gone. Did your dog go? I have not. It's funny. These dogs are funny. They, they won't really go on the walk. Um, okay. But it, the good thing about it is I don't have to carry the little like, sack around everywhere I go. No. So I kind of appreciate the fact they wait till they get home. Why don't we wrap up on a song called How I'm Going Out? <laughs> it, it seems perfect. And I wonder yeah. if there is, uh, maybe this is a bit too literal, is there some sense sure. that this might be about leaving Nashville and perhaps relocating to Colorado? This time of year, um, I go through this thing where we go out there and we're like, gosh, can we just make it work living here in, you know, in Telluride or you know, I was actually just in Boulder for a little bit, looking at some places there and checking out some schools. And I got a friend up in Wyoming, and you know, I'm not dying in Nashville. It's been a great city. I've enjoyed it. Good people here, but this is not my home. My home's in Arizona, out west, and my best day involves being outside as much as as possible. And that's hard to do out here because of the just the climate. But um, for me, I've been here 25 years, and I, I really want to get back out there. And I would be out there already if it wasn't for you know kids and also just you know, the, the commitment I feel and responsibility I feel to my um, my band that I'm able to fly as a pilot. I'm able to fly these guys everywhere, and that'd be a little harder to do that if we were based out of, you know, somewhere in Colorado. So I was just actually texting with, with Ryan Tedder about, because he lives in Denver, and I was texting him about, you know, what do you no. think of Boulder? He's from like, oh, from what, One Republic. Yeah. You should. yeah, from One Republic. He's like, you know, we got to talk about it. It's awesome. And my wife went to the University of Colorado at Boulder. I tried to get in there. I didn't get in, so but that's actually probably a good thing. I probably would never would have left and discovered uh, this life here. But yeah, at some point I'll be out there. It's just a matter of time. But um, my manager did not want me to cut, really put the song on the record. She said, it's so depressing. I'm like, yeah, but it's so true, and that's what makes records records great. Is like having that weight, having that honesty, that authenticity. I think you know, at some point, you know, spoiler alert, it is going to come to an end. 
When there's no more dreams to chase And when it's my turn to jump off this carousel I'm gonna ride that white horse and run like hell Be thankful for the friends I've made The hungry years, the glory days Give them one more song and let this guitar dance Dirks, thanks for being with us. Honored to be on the on the on the show all across Colorado. So thank you. And that's how we're going out with country singer Dirks Bentley. His new album is The Mountain, and his new Seven Peaks Music Festival is Labor Day weekend in Buena Vista. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Gonna ride that white horse and run like hell No slowing down, no looking back Let the credits roll and fade to black Give them one more song and let this guitar down